hi everyone, this is Sarah DM and you're back for episode 10 of DM Talks. DM Talks is a podcast that aims to promote hate well-being and assist healing, whether that be physically, mentally or spiritually. Ultimately, we just want to be seen in our entirety and this podcast hopes to show listeners how multifaceted they are. We're all at the centre of our own universe, so why don't we do more to better our own existence? So welcome back everyone. Um, I'm really excited for today's episode. I feel like I'm excited for like every single episode, but today I'm double excited because um, we're going to get into it. We're going to give you all the tea and I'm, oh my God, I'm so gassed. I'm so, so gassed. Um, so yeah, no, I need to, I need to introduce my guest first of all. And um, I found my guest through a good friend, Amber, shout out to you. Um, today we are, pro- sorry, I don't know why I'm stuttering and talking like this. I'm kind of really <laughs> excited. I'm just really excited because I've been talking about this for so long and now it's here. But okay. Uh. Okay, so it's a bit flustered. <laughs> okay, okay. So today I'm really excited. I am joined by um, a guest that I'm really inspired by. I'm really, really inspired by. She is a black woman. She is a therapist. She is also uses her Instagram platform to educate the masses in that psychological way. Oh, I just love it. Um, yeah, no, I'm so excited. So without further ado, welcome Tasha. Hello. Hello. Hi, hi, hi. How are you <laughs> I'm today? so excited to be here, honestly. Like, this is like, so, I'm so guest. so. Oh, honestly, I'm <laughs> so happy because like, I've got a smile from here to here. As soon as um, I spoke to Amber, she's like, oh, I know someone's so good. Do you love to speak about this? I'd be like, sold. I'm, oh, <laughs> I've just been in my feelings. I've been manifesting this, like, episode even before this uprising of black lives matter even before like everybody wanted to learn about race all of that like i wanted to talk about my dissertation in a way that was relatable and also accessible because that's the thing like i'm so like i love the fact that i did a dissertation on racial microaggressions like i'm still so proud of myself but not everybody is um not not everybody is able to get that information you know so like mm-hmm. let's say if we discuss it in a podcast it's like oh i got it here yeah yeah yes so but um <laughs> before we start wailing on can you tell listeners a bit about yourself how did you get to your position and tell us a bit about the real talk therapist okay yeah so yeah i'm a child and adolescent counselor um so i work with adults with children with teenagers and it's just always been a dream of mine like since I was 15, I was like, I want to be a child psychotherapist. And I think due to so many things, like mental health in my family, my experiences, seeing that mental health isn't really spoken about within the black community, it's something that's kind of shunned or not spoken about and it's quite, there's a lot of shame around it. Mm-hmm. Um, I also love creativity and art and music and metaphor. And so the way that I work specifically with my clients is to use all of that stuff um, because some of the words are just not enough. Mm-hmm. Um, so I work in private practice with my own clients. I also work in a primary preschool, and I also work with young people um, aged 60 to 25 in a charity. And I also work in the self space as well. Oh, amazing. A really so, amazing kind of radical therapy service. Ooh, um, yeah, so it's kind of like, so therapy is like really like, it's pretty rigid, right? You go the same time each week and yeah. 
it, it can feel a little bit cold or traditionally it can feel a bit cold, but I guess sales space is a very kind of modern way of doing things. So you can book in a session whenever you want to. Oh. You don't have to go weekly, go monthly, you can go just whenever you need to. So it's a very kind of different, it's all done for an app, like it's all very different. Oh, amazing. Um, so yeah, that's another bit of my work. And Real Talk Therapist is a account that I made January this year. And I guess I realized that a lot of people are interested in therapy, but perhaps are a little bit scared about it because it seems very cold and very clinical. And there's this whole thing about keeping boundaries as a therapist. And so I was thinking about when I was looking for a therapist, it was pretty scary. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a lot of questions. I had a lot of anxieties about approaching it and didn't really know where to go with that. And so I thought I'd make a page about that that therapy is pretty scary, um, a scary step. But actually we could have conversations on my page, which will basically kind of open up the awkward stuff and the difficult stuff, questions that you really want to know. And even calling out some of the like areas that are just not working in the therapy world. Mm. Um, And specifically thinking about what it's like as a black woman um, and particularly as a black British woman, because there's a lot of stuff out there about african-americans and blackness but not so much about britishness Mm -hmm. so my page is basically about the real talk of therapy it's like naming the awkward moments it's naming the hard moments it's naming when you need to break up with your therapist like it's just all these kind of things that you you probably have questions of or you you're curious about but need space to kind of know what that is and where that is so and it's really colorful because i love rainbows so yeah (laughs) amazing honestly that's brilliant like I think the fact that you're like you said but providing this information in an accessible way with color and with like animation and with like that simple formatting like we don't realize how receptible that is and when you sort of tap into how significant that is it helps educate the masses and like oh yay well done you I'm so happy for you like because I just think it's sick like I think like even when I wanted to do this podcast like well the fact that I'm doing this podcast in itself like it's all to do with healing and well-being and sort of helping you change perspectives but if you are black and British and experience racial trauma how can you constructively work through it if you're not given the tools like surrounding it like I remember even on the phone to you when we were talking about unhelpful thinking habits and I'm sure we'll get into it in decoding the messes so maybe I'll save it for a little bit then but um yeah no I just find it really really inspirational what you're doing so yay thank you oh thank you (laughs) it it Um, really has grown much further than I imagined that it ever would like I just thought it'd be like a nice little side project and I'll just see how it goes and you know Probably no one wants to talk about therapy on Instagram anyway, but actually a lot of people do. Um, yeah, no, for sure. So yeah, it's been cool. Because like you said, like there was a lot of stigma associated with mental health and therapy um, it, within the black community. So it's like mm-hmm. all the people, I think, like, well, I can't speak for everyone, but you know, like um, how that sort of intergenerational belief, like 
if that's sort of taken away by like my age, then you've got all these people that want to look for a platform to learn about this stuff. However, they don't know where to start. So that's why it's great to have tools like yours on Instagram. Cause it's like, oh, I can learn about it through here. And then that will promote my independent study. And now you're going to therapy. Yeah, yeah. So it's great. So it's great. It's just a ripple effect of like development, personal development. And I'm, I'm so here for it. Um, but before I ask you 101 <laughs> questions about what's it like to be a black woman also a therapist, um, I think we should get into the first segment of the episode. So um, yeah, that's the divine and that's where we nominate a good thing. And um, yeah, so I've got a nomination. It was just a really, really nice experience. So I thought I'd bring it up. Um, this weekend, I had the opportunity to visit a few friends because it was one of my one of their birthday, and um, we had a lovely weekend. at loads of food, loads of wine. Like it was really like you know like mm. just a girls holiday. It was super fun. And um, anyway, so on the last day, there was this yogi. Um, uh, to be fair, I'm not sure what what she what she her title exactly was her name was amy she was like part yogi part like skincare expert part spiritual like um spiritual sort of um guardian let's say mm. and we had a lovely experience so basically um me and seven girls um we all decided what we wanted our attention we what intention we wanted to be planted um within ourselves um, independently or collectively. So we all said our intention and we created um, this art piece with different organic materials, whether that was coffee or turmeric um, on this like canvas. But then we put the canvas on like biodegradable paper. So after it, we were able to plan our, um, our creation that we all contributed towards into the ground and one of my friends she put like seeds on it so hopefully it's going to like wow. turn into like grow into something beautiful and that experience like it was definitely very spiritual and it was very cleansing but it was also really affirming because I so I went there for a friend's birthday, but I didn't actually know many of the friends that was also like many of the mutual friends that I was attending like with. And yeah. all of us had come from different walkways of life, different experiences, different traumas, but we were all able to sort of um, be comforted in the fact that it's a safe space and everyone, everyone's intention was just filled with love and comfort and protection and support. And yeah, no, since I've been back, I've been feeling very, um, I've been feeling, feeling so comforted. So that's my nomination. Thank hey. you, Amy. Like, honestly, she was amazing. I'm definitely going to have to do it again. <laughs> It was such a great time. It was such a great time. I was literally like, girls, holiday, day, 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 day. Like, I loved it. I loved it. I loved it. But um, yeah, what's your nomination for The Divine? So it's really hard because I, I had like three. Oh, um, honey, you can have three. Okay, okay. I'm going to go for three. Okay, so the first one is a song. Um, it's called Sing to the Moon by Lua Mavula. Um, and it's, there's a specific version I like, which is the snarky puppy version. And this song, I can come back to it at any point in life and it just takes me to a certain place. And it's something of like, 
I mean, I, I don't, I don't, I, I don't know what her intention for the song was, but my intention for the song is something of like grounding. Mm-hmm. It's like finding hope. It's basically like saying, you know, when you're having a really difficult time, look up and sing, and sing to the moon, and that's where you'll find yourself. And it's just so powerful. It's so like, powerful. I've so many times to that song. Like Aww. it's just so beautiful. Um, so yeah, that's like definitely one to to be dedicated and risen up. Yes. And, and then I guess the other two are kind of combined, and that's nature. And I have this. So I have a million plants at the moment. Like, oh it's my yes. <laughs> Literally same. Look. <laughs> oh. Like, yeah. Covered with them. I've got dried. I've got this dried flower here as well. Like, oh, oh you can't really see it. It's kind of, it's kind of pretty in this side. But I've decided. Like, I've become obsessed with dried flowers and like just green plants. So I get you. <laughs> They're just amazing, and like they've got a life of their own. And mm-hmm. this one, uh, this is a Calathea medallion. Okay. So yesterday, this was looking so ill. It was, I literally thought it was dead. Yeah. Um, all the leaves were kind of cold, like cold around and limp and kind of gray. And I didn't know what was wrong with it. I literally was like really upset. And I think it's because we've moved, I've just moved out. So every plant has a different need, right? And you're trying yeah. to work out what room is it best? What, what is the lighting, the humidity, yeah. the water? Yeah. Blah, 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 blah. The cats, like, are they going to attack this plant as well as another thing? And this one, I think I just was putting it in the wrong room. And so I gave it a bath yesterday. Yes. <laughs> in water. And then it's come alive again. And it's oh, just, amazing. Like, oh, that's just something of like, wow, like how resilient and just that you're still here. <laughs> like I thought I lost you. So there's something there about the kind of resilience and the just yeah the, the bounce back nature like the the finding what you need that's actually so that really kind of good way of putting it tell me about <laughs> some plants <laughs> yeah. so actually i've got a picture of what the plant looked like uh yesterday okay so sad i don't know if you can see that it's a bit a bit like still. low so yeah there's that and then the other thing about nature was that a couple of weeks ago i went strawberry picking yeah um for my my niece's second birthday he had strawberry picking and so we picked so i really hate beetroot but i was like let me just pick some beetroot okay um pick some beetroot and then my brother told me like this recipe so i tried it out yesterday it was beetroot and ginger juice and oh, hello it was so nice wow <laughs> so, that was like kind of like pureeing the beetroot, putting it through a sieve, adding water, adding sugar, adding ginger, put it in the fridge, nice and cold. And it's really good for like metabolism and energy and apparently for like your intestines or your kidneys Amazing. or something like that. So I'm feeling really energetic today. We love to see <laughs> it. Exactly. And the listeners love to hear it, you know, like we're all about that high energy and Dean talks. Um, Oh no, that sounds amazing. I'm actually trying to like um, get more healthier because I've realized like 
you know how you can have like a healthy vegetarian or health or like a, a unhealthy vegetarian i am unhealthy vegetarian <laughs> and like i need to get more like raw foods in me so like i just have a bit more of a balance but i guess that will start with the beetroot and ginger juice yeah <laughs> no, I'm definitely gonna try. It. I'm gonna do a food shop tomorrow, and I'm gonna add some beetroot to my list because I oh I love ginger. Ooh. Yeah, ginger. Yeah, it's just wakes you up, you know. Mm, definitely. Oh, amazing. Well, I shall take you to the next segment then. Yes. Which is that wasn't really much of a segue, was it? But fuck it, we're we're here. <laughs> well, um, okay. So to be fair, I'm just so excited for this bit. So let's go. Um, so the next part of the segment is called decoding the messes, and that's when we unpack something that we've seen on and offline. And um, today, in the spirit of psychology and um, well, just life, I think microaggressions is such a it's just such a significant topic to me. So it's kind of mad because when I talk about microaggressions, it's like second nature, but to a lot of people, they don't know where, what it is at all. So I wanted to sort of have this episode with, um, with you just to sort of discuss like, um, we'll just discuss, discuss the intricacies of it because it's very like insidious and it's very like, dismissive and if you're if you don't have clarity in self and if you don't have clarity in your mind microaggressions can mess with your head so much so i'm really really passionate about the subject (laughs) (laughs) i can see that (laughs) (laughs) how do you feel about microaggressions what is your like experience with them how when when did you learn what a microaggression was so i think when i first experienced like not when I first experienced, but when I first, I guess, acknowledged its existence was when I was, how old was I, maybe 22 or so, I went on a backpacking trip with my friend, um, who is who's Russian, white Russian, mm-hmm. um, and we went across Asia. We started in India, um, and that was like literally being confronted with microaggressions every single day of my, every single minute of my existence in those countries. Yeah. Um, and I think I had, I had definitely experienced it before in, in, in the UK, yeah. but I just had not registered them. I just thought that that's just, that's just something that happens to me. Yeah. It's just a me thing. It doesn't really happen to anyone else. It's just part of my experience. Like I kind of written it off, but I guess things like being asked constantly, um, where are you from? Mm-hmm. Oh, England. No, but where are you really from? Oh, you don't. You don't have a British passport. Like all these kind of things of like basically denying my identity. You know, mm. I'd be asked, "Where are you from?" Okay, if you're really from England, show me your passport to prove it. Do you know what I mean? Uh, They're crazy, aren't they? Yeah. Or like speaking to my friend, but not speaking to me, or speaking to my friend about me. Where's your friend from? And I'm right here. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, those kind of things was just like. It kind of shattered the glass. Mm. I think I had a bit of a facade of like, no, there's no racism or, my, or anything like this. It's like, everything's all great and fine in England. And yeah. then when I came back from that trip, I started to see things a lot more clearly. Mm. Um, I think the first time I started to read about microaggressions was, it was either Slay in Your Lane or it was Why I No Longer Talk to white, white People About Race. I feel like it was Slay in Your Lane that like it really kind of hit home for me. Yeah. And just making sense of like, oh 
that's not just a me thing like yeah. that's that's a black thing or that's mm. a black woman thing and and then even like hearing other people's stories and being like oh but you experienced that as well like wow and then i think around that era it kind of became a lot more spoken about so yeah. for example when Get Out came out. <laughs> literally. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> because it literally just brings so many microaggressions. And you, you find yourself laughing because you're just like, oh, my goodness, that's actually me. <laughs> do, you know, do you know what someone said to me once? Um, Get Out is a comedy for black people and it's a horror film for white people. <laughs> yeah. Yes, it is. Because <laughs> they're like, oh my god, someone said that to you, and you're like, ah, do you remember that time? <laughs> and it's so funny because my white Russian friend, she came with me to watch Get Out, and she could laugh at those moments with me because she's 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 seen it happen to me, like yeah, obviously in India, so she saw those moments. Or when you're in, when you're just talking to people randomly in London, and they're like, oh, what's your favorite R&B song? And you're like, well. I don't touch it at that time on that time B. So how did you do that? <laughs> do you know what I mean? It's crazy. Like, I think my relationship to microaggressions is a bit different just because like I was brought up in Windsor and because oh, yeah. there was so much like do you wrong, there's oh, there's so many different kinds of racism, but one racism that was really apparent in Windsor was the whole inferring something else but suggesting different in the sense yeah. of like, oh, you're black, but oh, I'm intrigued by your blackness, you know? Like, it was very like, um, oh, I, um, like you're definitely, they were probably, ra they were racist, but it's like, oh, but I'm really intrigued and interested by this person as well. So like, when I learned about that kind of um, microaggressions, it was, to be fair, actually, let me take that back. When I ha had those experiences, I could see them as like little things that would just take, I would have to take time out of my day to sort of um, cater around, which was, I mean, unfair because I'm supposed to exist just as much as any other person on the, on, in that place, but it happened. It really came into like, um, I, re I was really able to like, understand it though when I went to boarding school and um, that's when I became comfortable not became comfortable became familiar with um, I think her, their name Sue Wing and they did um, so the term microaggressions I think the history of it was actually coined um, from an African-American lecturer who was discussing their experiences um, mm -hmm. in higher education or black people's experience in higher education. But then since that, there's been so many studies which talk about um, discrimination within mo different marginalized communities. So whether that's you're in the LGBTQI group or whether that's you are um, a part of a different ethnic group. Let's say if you're a, um, you're a part of the gypsy community and you're getting microaggressions, you know, like it's, in when I went to boarding school, I had to learn and understand that people get different microaggressions from different things. So it was sort of like adapting to the microaggression and seeing um, what I have to take from it and what I'm going to use with it, if that makes sense. But um, you know, I've realised that we've been talking about microaggressions. There might be some people that still don't know what they are. So I'm going to read out a little definition. So um, it says here that 
Microaggression is a term used for brief and commonplace daily verbal and behavioral or environmental dignities, whether intentional or unintentional, that communicate hostile, derogatory or negative prejudicial slights and insults toward any group, particularly culturally marginalized groups. So, um, yeah, it actually says here that the, the term was coined by a Harvest, Harvard University professor called Chester M. Pierce in 1970. So, yeah, so that's not even that long ago. That's 40 years ago, you know. And then by the early 21st century, use of the term was also um, applied to casual degradation of socially marginalized groups. And this is when we talk about Gerald um, Wing Su, who talks about microaggressions, and he has an extensive amount of literature um, surrounding the subject. He was actually the first person that I became familiar um, with in relation to psychology and mm -hmm. racial um, based education because in second in boarding school I was getting microaggressions all the time all the time and I was like right I cannot like it cannot just be me then and that's when I just realized the word of microaggression so even the fact that I have the privilege of having that word I'll be like oh excuse me teacher did you know this was a microaggression yeah you're actually insinuating this and because like I was stating it clearly what they're doing they couldn't say shit yeah, yeah. you know and um I mean, so yeah, so that was my, I guess, my introduction to microaggressions or introduction to the language. But then, yeah, like I said, going to boarding school, going, living in Windsor, even being dark skinned, like, I think I've um, faced a lot of extremities of discrimination. And I know that's another reason why I'm quite sensitive to, um, well, I, I might be more sensitive to things than others, you know? But saying that, I think it's also given me so much like, um, I don't know how to explain it. When I was younger, I used to recall it to, I used to refer to it as a racial radar because with my mind, like I was constantly observing the social situation that was in front of me, whether it was the fact that I was the darkest um, person in the group or if I was the only black girl in the group, or if I didn't have as much money as my peers because I was at a bougie boarding school, you know? Like, I've always come from a place where I'm not just outside, but I'm outside of the outside. So it's given me a, um, a different perspective on this matter, you know? Um, so I went to university and bearing in mind of what I've said, I really wanted to give university a chance because, well, not, not a university chance, but I really wanted to give myself a chance in the way that I understood race relations in regards to psychology, people, identity, whatever, because I know I've seen like really like fucking sinister shit. And um, I think when I went to university, it was just like so disheartening because it was like, oh no, whatever, whatever experience in the before that, that was just like extreme experiences of racism. University, that's fucking racism because you're able to, you're able to understand how it's systematic. You're able to sort of see that you, you're able to really see and gain clarity of the fact that people can't leave their bias at the door. These people are now lecturers, these people are limiting opportunities and resources for people from marginalized communities and you can sort of understand how the cycle of racism continues and it was alarming to me because within my second year of education, no my second year of university, I was in a situation which I was just experiencing like 
lots of racism but yeah. it's annoying because as black people and with racial trauma we want to dismiss forms of racism we want to be like oh wait no that can't be as racist as this racist so that's not racist but it's all fucking racism like it just all adapts to the environment so i think that's what really motivated me into conducting my study on microaggressions it was a great opportunity because like you said we always look at the u.s for cohorts and that's not um a fair representation of the things that we've things that happen to us in the UK, you know, like, I always find microaggressions especially, like, especially significant as well, because it's like, so us as British people, we like to be polite, we like to have a stiff upper lip, you know, we're, we're, we're not racist, we just do racist things, and we're like, wait, what, racism, you know, like, British people, we have this certain, um, indirect this capability to be indirect or passive aggressive like no other fucking country so in microaggressions in the uk ah insidious yeah. in, the insidious nature just flies it just consumes i oh, i just see it as like this fucking virus that just like it just like grows and you know it's just yeah, yeah. and and there's something about the the form of microaggression here in the uk which is because we're Great Britain, right? So there's yeah. this kind of thing of like, there's all this hierarchy. And I remember watching this video by, I think it was by Barton, uh, which is the Black and Asian Therapy Network. And um, they were showing clips of like, um, colonialism, colonialism, close to the word. Don't worry. <laughs> there was this, this video, it was probably from like the 1900s, early 1900s. There's a video of like, I think it was it was England and they were talking about it was I, I think they'll talk about India um, and there's this video of, it's like an advert and yeah. it's just like we are Great Britain and we are the greatest race of the world and da, 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 da. and I think that hierarchical kind of thing of like we are the best we are the greatest that kind of seeps into how racism is treated it's kind of like no we're not racist we don't do racism because we're so great but we'll do it in a really underlying way, so you won't be able to pinpoint where it actually is. So it's really insidious and really subtle and really dangerous. So um, dangerous. And if you think about like, and that's a different topic, but trauma, like any trauma, the trauma of a car accident or the trauma of a lifetime of abuse are going to be, have two different complete impacts. One is a mm. car accident, it can be treated straight away, it can be treated physically, you'll probably get loads of support. But mm. if it's something that's been going on and on and on, a lot of people won't see it and they won't recognise it and they won't acknowledge it. And so then how do you then get help for it? And I think that's a bit of how like, and, and I know there's been lots going on recently with the Black Lives Matter and, and there's been very drastic forms of, of racism happening. Mm. But there's also still those really insidious forms that are underlying, they're harder to highlight, they're harder to pull out, they're harder to stop in the moment. Mm. Um, the harder to understand and I think with a lot of microaggressions is that a person can say it and think that they've got good intentions but mm -hmm. actually it's not it's got an impact exactly and I think that you know what you've literally just nailed it on the nail of the head because I'm not um so for my dissertation I actually like was able to do a qualitative study so I was able to essentially 
put my experiences, put my participants' experiences into words. But because as this study had never been done before in the UK, mm. besides um, from, how mad is this, right? From the perspective of people of colour, they didn't, they had never, every time they looked at US cohorts, they didn't, like, I just don't understand, that's mad. How is me, a 23-year-old, graduated university 2019, wrote a study on microaggressions from the perspective of people of colour for the first time? Like, it's mad to it's me. Bad. And this, and, but I'm, sorry, I'm getting all excited because there's actually, um, so there's one thing I wanted to bring attention to throughout my dissertation. And I think there's certain points which, makes you sort of understand how insidious it is. So um, there's this whole idea of called intention exceptionalism. And in my dissertation, I wrote it as, communicative intent displayed by the transmitter of said microaggressions was found to influence whether the perceiver would validate their experience. The majority of participants discussed how, because some transmitters may not may have no intention for derogatory insights, although sometimes it may be intentional and so is commonly associated with more overt and direct racism, this should discourage the perceiver in responding in a way that is similar to one if one had perceived an intentional microaggression. This literally states how, because we're so used, or because we're so much more comfortable in um, confronting intentional, indirect forms of um, discrimination, we allow intentional or uh, lesser than to sort of slide away. But tell me, who, who, who decides this? Who decides what is less and who decides what is more? If someone is getting bullied at work in a, major in a collection of microaggressions because of what the food they eat or what they, um, or how they speak, et cetera, et cetera, that is still racism. Like that racism, like isn't less or more the fact that when I'm walking down a street, a white man might push me out of the way because I was, I was supposed, because in, in their eyes, I was supposed to get away from them. Like who is higher than us or bigger than us to say that experience is worse than that experience. So it makes me feel really uncomfortable because I hate this idea of comparing pain. Like, don't get me wrong, there's levels. Like if someone's got, if someone's experienced like a hate crime and then someone's experienced like, um, micro invalidations, which suggests that, um, suggests that someone is literally just unaware of the person of color or the black person's experience that's going to be completely different and obviously you need to respect the precautions that come after that you know yeah and and the, the thing is that they both cause pain they both cause impact for that person that's having to receive that and i think as well there's this thing of like i think we're so used to experiencing um, or hearing or seeing ne negative projections onto blackness. Yeah. Um, or yeah, there's, there's only negative, negative projections on us. But sometimes these microaggressions, they sound like they're positive, mm. but they're not. Yeah. They're kind of, they sound like compliments, but they're yeah. actually not. And so it can be easier for us to receive it 
or to not challenge it because it's like, oh, that's that's nicer than what this person's saying. Like for example, um, trying to think of something where you're so pretty for a black girl. Yeah, like that. Perfect. (laughs) (laughs) One I know too well. It really screws up your head because it's like, oh, that's really nice, but it's not. But it's nice, but it's not. Yeah, (laughs) Um, it's. It's ridiculous. It's like, um, so in, when I did my dissertation, it was like, so you get f- different forms of um, mi- microaggressions. You get micro assaults, micro ins, no. Yeah, micro assaults was just like secondhand, like immediate racism. Um, not secondhand, like, um, like old age racism, you know, like if, um, <laughs> just, I don't know how to explain it, but like let someone, let's say if someone called me a monkey, right? that would be second old age racism it's obvious racism it's direct but like also there i don't know it's um sorry let me start again (laughs) so with microaggressions you've got um you've got three different types of microaggressions you have micro assaults micro insults and micro invalidations micro assault would be like call it if a racist called me a monkey right don't get me wrong that's still racist and it's still direct but because it's the most it's sort of the most recognizable one out of the microaggressions it's recognized as stronger in comparison to like a micro insult which is oh you're so pretty for a black girl like that's a backhanded compliment which literally suggests that i'm pretty but then i'm limited because of my blackness yeah yeah and then if you look okay so that's like something that can be said to me like a verbal microaggression which is obviously in, in, in like it's discriminative and in, insulting however that is now reinforced by environmental microaggression in the sense of we see no dark-skinned black women in our media in our representation on magazines so you can see how let's say if i've got that comment over 10 times in a year of my life let alone throughout my whole lifetime and then i'm also combating the fact i'm living in a space where there's no dark-skinned women around me that's going to make me internalize that oh i'm only pretty for my prettiness is limited my beauty is limited and that's not fair and that's not what we should be pushing on young minds yeah it's also kind of saying that your group is not pretty, but I'll pick you out as the one that is. Do you, know what you mean? Feel special. You should feel special for being oh, here. Like no, that's not okay. okay. Honestly, <laughs> like. like I think it's so creepy as well. It's like, oh, you're so pretty for a dark-skinned girl. It's just like, oh my goodness, get away from me. Like, I didn't ask for any of this. Like, I literally was out here minding my business, yet you want to come with your long throat to say nonsense. Not today. <laughs> not today. Um, I wanted to, I think this is also a good sort of, um, a good time to sort of ask you more about, culu- I can never say the word. Is it cul- cumulative trauma? Cumulative trauma, yeah. That's the one. So yeah, like, especially in relation to microaggressions, because you might have, um, depending on the individual, you might have little things, you might have big things, but they all contribute to sort of um, chipping away at you, okay? And when you sort of recognise that as a idea of cumulative trauma, because it builds over time, how do you even go about dismantling that, you know? Big question. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry. That is a big question. It is a big question. Um, I think 
like it, it kind of acts like the, the thing that comes to mind is like a narrative. So we experience these things, whether it's like microaggression or racism or trauma in other areas, but maybe it might link to that to, to something from the, from the experience that we have from the racism. So, for example, if I was in primary school and my teachers made me feel like I was not smart enough and they put me in the special educational needs or SEN. Yeah. Uh, which often happens a lot to black young children. Um, that means that if another microaggression comes or uh, something, a microaggression comes which makes me feel like I am stupid or not smart, that's going to hurt me even more because I remember that other experience of where I was put into an SEN group. So it's kind of like all these things they come together and they can form a narrative which can be really insidious and really harmful to us. I might then carry away this narrative that I'm stupid, mm. I'm not smart, I'm not good enough. Any job that I get, I don't deserve it because mm. I shouldn't be here. And then this whole imposter syndrome comes in and kicks in. Mm. And I think that's like an example of cumulative trauma. It's all these, these scars, perhaps in one area or in the various areas, that, that really kind of damage us and hurt us and mm. we carry it with us, we carry this pain and sometimes we end up kind of reenacting it or having to act it out because this narrative keep, keeps being thrown back on us all the time. Um, I don't know if that makes sense. But no, that made, that made sense. I really, really appreciated that. Like I think it's, um, as you were talking, it actually reminded me of our phone call um, when I discussed that I saw this video on microaggressions, but it was aimed at children because there's this whole idea that, um, oh, we shouldn't teach children um, racism. Like they're too young for getting that fucking black and brown people get to be our children too at some point in their lives. And um, so that's a con consistent argument that comes up within racial education. I don't understand how, because it's like, what, did you not think this person was for once? Like, where do you think they learn about race? Um, Anyway, so there's this video called um, Microaggressions as Mosquito Bites. And it's animated, it's um, like cartoonistic, it's very easy and digestible, and it's really, um, it, it's really relatable. So basically, they have a video, and they describe microaggressions as mosquito bites, but they say that some people get more mosquito get bitten more so than others. And they show this in the video with like, let's say, um, a same-sex couple walking down the street and then they get bitten or um, uh, put an individual in a wheelchair and they're getting something in the supermarket and then they get bitten um, and then there was I think for the like the I like how they use the black woman cartoon for one of the multiple ones because it was like oh some black some people get bitten more so than others. And it was like, this black woman, bite, 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 bite. And it's like, the last bite was like, oh, you're so aggressive. And then she's there like with this, it's quite funny because it's like a cartoon, but she's there like, sort of like, ah, like she's got this like fire thing. She's like upset and like sort of shouting, but then you just see her crying. And I liked how they used that representation for the last video because it showed you how massage noir influences um the mosquito bites the microaggressions mm -hmm. it shows you how um like the microaggressions that she was receiving was about her hair about her articulation about her skin color about her this like there is no 
there's 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 nothing in a black woman that people that racists don't come for and they showed that in a video just by using three different microaggressions that was around her, her the way that she spoke the way that she looked and the way that she carried herself you know and they had that as the last um they had that in the video they also had some people um who are mosquitoes are in dangerous positions and there was a image of a conversation but a conversation in a college like admissions like office but the college admissions tutor was the mosquito bite you know mm -hmm. so now you see how microaggression has now influenced this individual because let's say if i say to um an individual like oh i don't think you're good enough for this degree or I don't think you're you're capable of um, like this is going to be a massive struggle. And then that person's like, okay, well then I won't apply for this one. And that has limited their opportunity, their resources. It's limited their like self belief as well because now they think that they can't do something when really it's someone's own presumptions being projected onto them. Like even now, you can see how a microaggression and in uh, some, uh, uh, okay, you can see how microaggression, a form of racism that is perceived to be less than has now impacted on a societal level, on an institutional level. So this is why I think microaggressions are so important because it's like, who are we to say what's uh, okay microaggression, what's a good microaggression, what's a bad microaggression, what, what is this? Like, there's so many forms of racism that you need to sort of respect it and evaluate it when it happens because if you don't, you're sort of left in this double-bound dilemma where you're damned if you do and damned if you don't and sort of feeling hopeless, and that's not fair. And it, it reminds me of what you were saying about the... Because that sounds really powerful. I haven't watched it yet, but I, mm -hmm. I, haven't, I feel like I haven't watched it yet. And um, that scene that you said of the black woman and then with the fire, I think people are so quick to see the fire before they see the build-up that got to the fire. Exactly. And then and then another microaggression then comes and say you're aggressive or you're too much or you're the angry black woman. Yeah. But there's a process. You you triggered me to get to that place. You triggered me. You triggered that anger within me because you couldn't. I didn't feel safe. Do you know what I mean? And, and the, yeah. yeah. Sorry. Go on. Sorry. Go no, on. No. We're getting into it. We're getting into it. We're getting into it. Look at us. Look at us. <laughs> go on. Um, yeah. It's just. It's just mad. Like it's just. There's that quote. Um, if you think something is too small to make an impact, try sleeping in a room with a mosquito. And that, oh, wow. that explains it so beautifully. How oh my goodness. And because mosquitoes are so tiny, you don't see them, but you can feel them. And they hurt, they oh. sting, they scar. It's crazy. Mate, that is such a good quote, especially with this video. I think it's Anita Roddick, the, the person that made the body shop. Oh, I see. Yeah. Oh, wow. No, it's, it just, it's, it's mad. I like microaggressions. It's just like this. People don't realize the power of microaggressions in it. And I think that's why this episode is so important because when you understand it, as anybody can communicate this, form of microaggression we all are in different places of power you can really see the effects of it so like even in my dissertation um 
there was a participant from a half Pakistani and a half um, white British background. And um, she stated how, because she's more white passing, she gets more microaggressions from her Pakistani family. And if you're a person of color, if you're a black person, that's not shocking. You know, that's not shocking. There's the amount of times where I'll, um, Bill criticised for not being black enough or not being this enough. It's draining, let alone if I was actually like white passing, do you know what I mean? And I wrote that in my dissertation and people were like, oh my God, really? What? What do you mean? And I'm just like, I mean, I'm not the first person to, well, I mean, I am actually. I was about to say I'm not the first person to say this, but I am. I am because it's crazy. It's, it's kind of, it's kind of mad because Yes, anybody can transmit a microaggression, but like I said, we are in different places of power. So how, how the impact of the microaggression is, um, well, deba debatable. It's, it differentiates to person to person. I was actually um, reading a study before, um, let me see if I can actually get it up. I was reading a study um, before our phone call and it's called, How Does Stigma Get Under the Skin? The Meditating Role of Emotional Regulation. Um, it's in 2000, where is it? Let me just, let me go for reference. Okay, so 2009 um, by Mark L. Hatzenbluer. I'm sorry if I pronounced your name wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and um, John Davido and Susan Nolan Hoeksema. Um, I hope that's given enough people intel for to find the study. But um, yeah, no, I use this study in my dissertation because I think it's so important. It's called How Does Stigma Get Under the Skin? And it, you just used a sample of LGB, um, lesbian, gay, bisexual respondents and um, racial, um, racial respondents. So like black, mixed race, and I think it was Asian. Obviously, there are limitations for studies like this because it's like, um, how can I talk about, um, how do I word this? There are limitations because it's like, okay, so now even what I just said, oh, the study is using um, lesbian, gay and bisexual sample. There are more people in the lesbian, gay, like in the LGBTQI group. Yeah. So do you see how already yeah. it's a bit like limited because it's like, well, it's not fully re representative. Anyway, let me carry on. So this sample, um, this, this, experiment wanted to examine whether specific emotional regulation strategies account for stigma or distress association so they um so all the participants they took part in this um that took part in the study they accounted that they received more um stress when they had a stigma related incident regardless if they were african-american no in the racial respondents or the sexuality sort of respondents right mm -hmm. however so here, this is when it gets a bit like, ooh, psychology. Okay, so, um, the, so in experience sampling study, rumination and suppression occurred more on days when stigma-related stresses were reported than on days when, they, when, these, when these stresses were not reported. And rumination mediated the relationship between stigma-related stress and psychological de-stress. Right. The next bit, the effect of social support and distress was moderated by concealability of stigma. I just really want to heighten what I've just said. So concealability of stigma. There's individuals in a group that are part of the LGB community, but 
that is not um, visible, right? You can't look at someone and be like, that person's gay, right? You, you don't know unless, I don't, obviously there's culture, cultural influences that might align with um, someone showing their sexuality. So let's say the fact that the pride flag or the rainbow um, is so iconic to the LGBT group, the pride um, like symbolism, that might refer to knowing someone that is gay. However, you cannot actually tell if they are gay, you know? So see a group of people who look like me, it is obvious that they are black. There's no room for ambiguity. There's no room for um, confusion. You know, like you look at me, you see a dark skinned black woman and the level of concealability influences the level of microaggressions. And that is apparent in all forms. Like I was, uh, one of my themes or one of my sub themes in my study was talking about assumed increased uh, vulnerability. And there was this um, lady who is from Pakistan, uh, this participant from Pakistan. And she was saying that she doesn't receive microaggressions that much or she doesn't notice them that much because her clothing are more westernized. However, if someone was wearing a burqa or some, no, if someone was wearing a hijab and then a burqa, then, yeah the microaggressions between this community is going to be ridiculous because now it's made it more apparent that they are other, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I remember like, this is ages ago, but I had this random like metaphor in my head of thinking about it as like onions. Okay. Like every, every, every so you've got like white onions, are they white onions? You can get no, brown, onions. brown onions. Brown onions and you've got the red onions. Brown onions tend to be a bit more, I don't know, I think they're more used. Um, but there's something of like, yes, there are all these intersections, like in the onion, you've got all these layers underneath of discrimination that someone could experience. They could experience discrimination because of their sexuality or because of their gender or because mm. of their um, mental illness. But a lot of these things are unseen. But with our skin color, we can't hide it. It's we, we have to wear it. We don't have that agency to say, oh, by the way, you're black. Mm. Like, we don't have that. Whereas someone that is, is gay or lesbian, they, they have that, that, slight, that agency to be like, I can decide when I tell somebody that. Mm. I can decide when I reveal that. I can decide who gets to know that. Mm. But us, we wear it. It's, it's who we are. We, ha we don't have that agency. And so it leaves us open and vulnerable to more microaggressions without our permission exactly it, it, yeah like there's there a, a permission i love how you use that word because it you can this is why intersectionality matters you know because like right now we're talking about um concealability of stigma and the impacts of that but then you'll have a black queer woman and now they are open to to now another layer of form of discrimination because when they choose to disclose that or if they were outed if the, if if anything in in the form of disclosure means that now they're more susceptible to more harm yeah yeah and i just find it crazy how like it's so influential like it's everything's connected do you know what i mean like i find it mad how depending on how much I disclose, if I have the opportunity to, means of how much discrimination I'm gonna get. Yeah, yeah. And because then also the, the discrimination and the microaggressions come not just from 
like as a black woman i will get discrimination from white people yeah i will get discrimination from men if i was a black queer woman i would then maybe get discrimination from black people within my community that are, hom- are that are homophobic so there's like so many layers and groups that are then now turning towards me or or against me and so i'm i'm more alone and it reminds me of oh i wish i could remember her name don't um, worry take your time the, the actress from um do you watch pose oh i want uh, don't worry i've got you <laughs> <laughs> um Electro abundance. Angel? Angel? India Moore. Yes, India Moore <laughs> did this poem probably about a month or so ago. Oh my gosh, I cried. It was um it was called Can I Come or something like that. It was basically saying like it was, it was a it was a poem to the black community of can you invite me? Can I be there? Can I come to the cookout or are you going to discriminate against me? Mm. Will I, can, I, can, can you accept me? Will I be? It was just a most amazing poem. And it just highlights, I guess, the how many angles of microaggressions there are for, for, for those individuals. Like, Completely. No, I'm happy that you brought India Moore up because um, they're black, they're trans and non-binary and they are also more passing in the trans community than other people and they've mentioned this many times within their platform whether they're on interviews or whether they're talking about it on pose there was actually i think I think it was an argument actually, not um, Indian War. It was an argument between a lecturer and, um, oh, I can't remember the other house mother's name, you know, um, House of Evangelista, the person who has that yeah. house. Um, a lecturer's more, um, passes more as, passes more than um, that lady does. So there's this whole idea of like cis passing privilege. And mm-hmm. like, as us as cis women, like, that's something that we are completely unaware of. That's completely something that we, we not unaware of, that's something that we've con- been conditioned in. And it's yeah. only until further education, independent study, that we're unlearning those things. And like, we're just black women, let alone being on the gender, um, on the like, we're black women, let alone be like identifying outside the binary of gender. Yeah. So, microaggressions do you know what I mean like I, I don't even know where to start like that would be a complete mind fuck like and it's crazy because microaggressions because it's a mental thing it will have you gaslighting yourself dismissing yourself um wanting to understand things that don't make fucking sense because you're because so many people are trying to sort of cover, pull the wool over your eyes because that's their yeah. perception. They're in the privilege of being able to look in the world without being in a relationship, without being in a racialized body, or they have the privilege of like seeing this as an isolated incident and then leaving it. Yeah, yeah. You know, and it's just very. Sorry, I thought I heard a sound. I was like, oh my God.
Was there a ghost? Was there not? Find out. In part two of DM Talks. <laughs>